the cappuccino is not an Italian drink. It seems coffee myths have been around for about as long as people have been drinking it. What are these stories? Where do they come from? And why do they exist? Let me welcome our guest today, coffee historian, Professor Jonathan Morris. We're about to talk about some things that may be true, some things that may not be true. I want to start off with this question. Why do you think people come up with these stories or why are the stories carried on for so long? Well, I think that there's a reason for that, which is that, you know, obviously people want to explain things to themselves and they try to fit things together into a simple story to explain something that's currently uh, quite complicated. And so, you know, I've just finished doing this book, Coffee, A Global History. That's my first of many plugs. And um, one of the things about that is being a historian actually means that we have to verify things and that we actually look to see, well, okay, what's the story? Can we actually find a record for that that proves it? Can we find something that gives us enough to make us believe this really happened? And if we don't, then obviously we have to be a little bit suspect. But if we don't, we also then have to think about, well, how come that story exists? Quite often that story exists because somebody wanted to, to exist because it resolved a certain question or it steered people in a certain direction. So some things that people might want to say about coffee, for instance, you might want to put out that coffee had certain beneficial properties or you make some kind of myth how coffee made people powerful in the past or something like that because that way actually you can shape a message to people who might you you want to become your consumers for example or if you Mm. want to attack coffee you shape the message the other way you know all these things that coffee does that are bad for you or whatever and so we get those kind of myths manufactured around that and then we have that other set of myths which is actually your coffee is very complicated uh you know that jesse you you you've been doing it long enough you know it's a complex thing how do we understand it and quite often we just can't work out how and all of that stuff could have happened. So we come up with a convenient story that sort of makes it sound like it works. And that becomes rooted into myth. And, uh, you know, we have myths from the very beginning of coffee, right through, frankly, to the present day, where we have some nice myths. There's the famous myth, which is very much the internet myth. Coffee is the second most traded good in the world after oil. Yep, the, and, yeah. Um, yeah, we know that this just doesn't happen. Right. You know, when everybody actually gone into it and done the math and so forth, then really we can't justify that. Doesn't mean it isn't very important. And I can understand why it comes about because you want to say how big coffee is. If you like, you know, a large portion of the world is tied up in it in one way or another. But it becomes a kind of self-perpetuating myth. And every time, you know, I get a, like a, a request to do a TV interview or whatever, they always come back with, oh, we've done some research. And did you know that coffee is the second most traded thing? Because they find it on the internet, etc. So it becomes a myth. So there we go. That's, that's some myths for us. And I think when we look at these myths and how they come around, if you go through, if you will see that sort of way of thinking about both, well, how did that happen? And also, why did that happen? Um, so should we have a shot of you? It seems to me every coffee myth starts with the goat herd guy, Caldi. Caldi, yeah. Okay, uh, let's start with Caldi. So Caldi is a great example of what I was talking about. Caldi, we first know about from a written record in terms of a guy called Fausto Neroni. And Naroni published a book in 1671 about coffee, 
And Nironi was what we call a Maronite from the Levant. Nironi was a Maronite, that's to say he was a Christian, but living in the Levant, which is the kind of the area around modern day Lebanon. So in an area where we had both Christian and uh, Muslim population. And Nironi went to Rome and he actually published this stuff in Rome. And I would suspect that what happened is that Nironi who's therefore from an area where we've had coffee for quite a while. You know, we have definitive evidence of coffee from about the 1450s in the Arabia. I think what Nironi did was reproduce a myth that existed in the area to start understanding coffee. Now, if we remember the story, we've got several different versions. And, you know, the, the, the key, there's some interesting elements in this, aren't there? So, you know, Caldi, the story that I, I'm most familiar with, you know, Caldi is herding his goats, his goats eat the coffee berries, the goats get agitated. Caldi then tries some coffee berries, Caldi gets agitated. And then it starts getting interesting. Caldi <laughs> takes the berries to, a, I guess, an imam, a, a scholar, you know, a religious scholar. Sometimes we have it, see it written as a monk, you do, however you want to be, but it, it's, it's a religious scholar. And um, either at this point, the religious scholar says, you know, Caldi, this is a complete waste of time. Why have you bought me this rubbish and throws it on a fire, at which point it roasts and they smell the stuff and it becomes beautiful. Or he says, hey, this activity thing, this is really interesting, Cowley. Let's go with that and see how well we can you know, use that. Because, of course, we want to do some of our religious stuff and it would be really helpful if we could stay up all night. You see in that quite a lot of elements that coexist with what we do know about the origins of coffee drinking. So we do know that religion played a huge part in that, and specifically Islam and Sufi Islam. And we do know that the activity, the dancing, we know that Sufi rituals, many of those Sufi rituals incorporated sort of moments of, if you like, ecstasy. Mm. Um, so the kind of what, what, what used to be referred to as the whirling dervishes, the people doing circles and circles and going into these kind of entranced things. And we know that the Sufis worshipped at night and that they took what then was called Kisha, and uh, that they use this to maintain their activity levels against sleep. And indeed, the, the name that they gave for, for coffee, which uh, is confusing, but is, is kawa, uh, is about deprivation, hmm. a depriving of sleep. So what I'm trying to suggest here is, in a way, that Caldi story, although it sort of seems extreme, you know, let's say improbable in the least, it actually does quite a good job of getting us down the route of, well, how come we have this stuff? Now, the bit that's really funny then is the other bit, I think, which is the throwing the beans in the fire, which somehow gets us into roasting, which I think we were talking about last time. And again, we know that roasting is not something that happened overnight Mm -hmm. by any means, that we know that roasting, you know, quite literally roasting progressed gradually just as we can progress a roast gradually you know, the first things were very much the sort of the toasting of beans, the sort of the little bits do, you know, so the Arabian coffee was very light. And by the time you get to Turkish coffee, it's very dark. So so this story, if you like, this origin story works quite well at putting together a lot of complicated things about coffee. Because again, you know, if you started out, but you know, the, the question, who was the first guy to ever think, sit down and think, oh, well, look at a coffee bean and just stick that in a, you know, just roast that really dark, grind it up, add some hot water and hey, presto, I'll have a drink. Mm-hmm. 
that's not what happened. So Caldi gets us towards that and it incorporates some elements that clearly work with some elements that, you know, nowadays or as a, as a historical side don't really work at all. So that's Caldi. And I, <laughs> I, I like Caldi personally, but, um, you know, I think the idea that Caldi is a historic personage is, I'm afraid, just not going to work. Not, not going to fly on that one. Not going to fly. No, I mean, you, you'd need to eat as much coffee as those goats in order to fly that. I feel that this story of Caldi is pretty mainstream. I feel like even people who don't drink very much coffee have picked up on this uh, yeah. this story, which I think is pretty impressive. The, the story has that level of power of, of exposure, right? Yeah, and I again, the power, I think, comes from the fact that it, it, it does those things so well that it gives you a very good story about coffee, a quite memorable story that it seems to explain quite a lot, and that it goes back to sort of, you know, some nice pastoral roots, Caldi being the shepherd boy, the the sort of, you know, the kind of almost the innocence of the thing, uh, the goats, the natural side of it, the uh, the whole idea that, you know, the coffee again was growing wild at the time, which again matches what we know. So, yeah, I think that's true. And again, the other thing is Caldi, let's, you know, let's go to the other side of the equation that we were talking about. Caldi's a fabulous marketing story, no? I mean, mm, whatever yes. age you are, it's a great story. It has all those elements. It's nice and visual in a way. You can do lots with it. So, I mean, it's no surprise, I think, that that gets repeated and repeated. We're going to move on to uh, what, to me, is a very dark place because I have no idea. I, I, <laughs> didn't, I didn't even know about this. So this is uh, news to me. So the question for you is, yeah. did coffee fall off the map uh, before, the, before the 1400s? Right. Okay. So this is the one that I found interesting because as I say, you know, going back to being a historian and some of the stuff we do is boringly prosaic, like we kind of try and date stuff and to look at things where we feel that we have a scientific record for them. And that's why the 1400s is our start point. But there are times when people claim that actually coffee was around for a long, 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 long time. And by coffee here, I mean, you know, drinking coffee as a coffee-type beverage. Okay. And that we just never spotted it. So here are a few examples. And actually, what I'll do is I want to twist these around a bit because I think it's the same thing as with Nironi. There are some useful stories that, that try to do some things. So there's a guy, an English guy called Sir Henry Blount. And Sir Henry Blount wrote a whole treatise about how really the famous beverage that the warriors consumed at Sparta in ancient Greece before, I don't know if you remember that there's this story about, you know, 300 Spartan warriors mm-hmm. defeating 3,000 whatever. And before yeah. they do, they, they drink this very ritual beverage and it's some kind of, um, you know, black brew. So nobody knows what it is. So he came up with the idea it was coffee, which is, you know, has no historical evidence for that whatsoever. But um, put that out. And I think that's very much part of trying to recoup coffee for Christianity, for want of a better word, coffee for, for, as it were, European civilization. Interesting. Do you see what I mean? Like to claim it. It's like, yeah, because it, you know, it's a way of basically suggesting that coffee somehow was this contributor. And what, I, what I'm getting out of that in my head is the suspicion that maybe what's going on here is they're thinking, well, we want to have coffee for ourselves. 
Mm-hmm. You know, we want it to be one of our things, as it were, because that way it's sort of, you know, not only do I'm, you know, the Sparta thing is neither here nor there. In a way, it's more like, well, we've made it European and that makes it part of us. So it's okay for us to adopt coffee. And then the other one that I'm thinking of, there's a similar sort of story, which is almost kind of biblical, I suppose, that, you know, coffee is used in various, you know, people have suggested it's various bits of Esau's pottery, you know, Cain and Esau. So Mm -hmm. um, I think it's Esau who drinks some sort of red pottage. And um, again, people would would write commentaries on that, that this was maybe this was an early form of coffee that we, you know, and of course, I guess, again, that fits with the Bible being in the Middle East. We had another guy, an Italian, Pietro La Valle, who said that, you know, well, actually, there's this stimulant prepared by Helen in Homer's Odyssey. So we're back to ancient Greece again. Mm. It was called Nepenthe. Or Nepente, and you know that you Della Valle, who also wrote some very big and important sort of early treaties on coffee. Della Valle was actually a plant specialist, as it were, from Padova. Again, all of these things I think are actually aimed at doing something which is kind of like diminishing coffee as an Islamic drink, diminishing it as a drink for the other, if you like, and mm. trying to rewrite it into a more sort of classical set of origins. What is the reason for, for, is it just for claims? Is it for like kudos? Hey, you know, we had coffee first. I think it's for sort of cultural reasons, as it were. So it's a combination of we had coffee first, we're the superior culture. And also, of course, because it then makes it more culturally acceptable to drink coffee. Sure. So it turns it, do you see what I mean? We're doing the, doing yeah. both sides of the thing. And I think that although these people who are, are very much sort of members of the, the kind of intellectual classes, you can see that also, you know, as we go forward, there becomes a more kind of commercial element to that as well. If we think about, uh, just to throw another one at you, if yeah. we think about a historical example of that, I don't know if you know that there's the there's this famous women's petition against coffee in Britain in the 1650s, published in the 1650s. And it basically says, and um, I know you're going to talk about coffee and health and some of your other myths, mm-hmm. but this one is a particularly good one because it, it tries to counteract all the claims that coffee is good for you, which are made by the people bringing in coffee, uh, sure. many of which are spurious. <laughs> uh, but it counteracts them with all the bad things that coffee supposedly does for you, which includes you know, making men impotent. Now, yeah. that's a very interesting <laughs> claim. Yeah, that's that's, and, a, that's um, a frightening one, right? That's something. that is a, that is a very frightening claim, and would certainly be enough to start making you thinking about coffee and mm-hmm. your consumption thereof. And of course, there is another beverage which coffee is beginning to intrude on that may not make you impotent, but certainly might um, reduce your performance levels. Let's say, and that's beer. And so there is quite an argument for saying that the women's petition against coffee is really possibly published or, you know, put up there by brewers trying to fight back against coffee. Yes. So you see the sort of, uh, you know, the ways that we get into this. I want to tell you about one more lost, lost sighting of coffee. Yes. Because this is the one that I think is often not, it's often cited and it's not clarified. So there's a very famous... Uh, Islamic scholar who we know in uh, Western civilization, as it were, as Avicenna. 
uh, a Persian. I, I think he would, you would, his name would be Iban Saud in Persian. So he was a great botanist, philosopher, absolutely everything. He wrote a lot of manuscripts. And he wrote this sort of, you know, five-volume guide to plants, really. Um, and Avicenna has reference to something that he calls Buncham. And his manuscript is about from the year 1000. And he said something like, Buncham is yellow and it grows. And it appears from what he says that it sounds like it grows in the Yemen. That's it. That's all he says. Now on that, that's it, basically, yes. It's about a two-line description. It took me uh, an awful lot of training around to actually find the real description. So it's pretty ambiguous. But many people have said, you know, well, Bunchen sounds a bit like Buno or, Bo- or Buno, which is the, you know, the, the Ethiopian word. And uh, here it is being grown in the Yemen. You know, he's saying this comes from the Yemeni area. Uh, so we must have just missed this by about 400 years. And like I say, you know, when we look at that, that's very, very improbable evidence. Are you saying it's improbable because the description includes yellow or? Well, I'm saying that the description is sufficiently generic not to really be sufficient to identify coffee. Got you. It's it's not sufficient and there's no cross-references. Yeah, it's not sufficient. There's nothing that's really going to tie it down. We've no idea what he was, in truth, we've no idea what he was really talking about because, you know, obviously he felt that he described it sufficiently there, but um, <laughs> but we can't follow that. He must, and, have, he must have been in a hurry, I suppose. Well, he's got five volumes to write and that's a lot of stuff <laughs> to do. And that's just one of the innumerable things that the guy wrote. The guy right. is a, absolutely amazingly productive. You know, my problem with it is it's not enough to rewrite the history of coffee on. Hmm. It's actually sort of, well, that's kind of interesting, but we can't really revise it from that. We can't suddenly say, oh, well, actually it was growing, you know, really we've got it all wrong and coffee came from the lever. No, I don't think that we've got, you know, we have a lot of stuff, as you put it, you know, a lot of stuff that we can triangulate, if you like, that maps onto each other and a lot of evidence for what we have as the story of coffee and the times that it got introduced in the 1400s from Africa, Ethiopia, over into Yemen. Uh, and the creation of the first kind of coffee economy. So all of these other things, and in a way Avicenna is, is a different kind of myth because I think Avicenna is almost a modern myth. It's a, like, a, oh, we found something that we can date back coffee from. Oh, interesting. But really, I don't think we can. So I'm sorry to be a bit of a, you know, on this I'm a bit of a passion-killing historian, I'm afraid. Yeah, a bit of a historian. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. You know, occasionally one has to do one's professional duty, but there we go. You know, you read the headlines sometimes and you'll see rewriting the history books and there's a title and it's enticing and you see this in all kinds of uh, uh, historic topics, right? Is this something you might see the mainstream media take up and go, oh, the coffee history books have changed? Well, I think we have to watch out for that kind of information. We have to just be a little more critically engaged with it. 
the work of the historian, we always say, is to critique their sources, you know, to be aware of those wider contexts and how, do, you know, does this really tally and focus? And it's very easy if you want to believe, you know, when a story is good, and certainly, as you say, with, with, with the media, you know, a good story will go a long way. It's easy to kind of fall in with it without being a little bit more thoughtful about it. So I think we do have to be careful. And the other chain of one is it's a fulfillment belief, it seems to me. Hmm. You know, we'd like it to be true because it would be great. We'd have another 400 years of coffee history. Right. Um, but we really can't do that. In a way, I guess the, the motivation there could be a number of things, but the motivation of like, hey, this was our generation that discovered 400 more years of coffee. There's like some, you know, bent. Yeah, I think it's just people, you know, there's, a, there's always a desire to find a first reference, to find a first right. perfect thing. But it, it's, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm just a passion killer on that. So. No, it's so, we, we love the passion killers on our show, so don't worry about that. <laughs> <laughs> so this is going to be one of my favorite questions because I personally feel like the cappuccino has become sort of a symbol of uh, quality in, in cafe sense. Um, a lot of people uh-huh. go into a cafe, they'll say, hit me up with a cappuccino. You taste a cappuccino. If it's not good, if it's not presented correctly, if it's not the right temperature, then you never go back to that shop, right? Right, um, okay. It, some people do this. You know, some people do it with just espresso by itself or, you know, what yeah. have you. But the cappuccino is like, I feel like it's the thing. So yeah, it had to start somewhere. And I'm curious where. And can we even find that out? Okay. Boy, this is going to be fun. There are so many myths about the cappuccino and the origins of the cappuccino and what it should look like and all the rest of it. So uh, we're going to go through the cappuccino timeline and um, try and start with a try and start with putting a few myths to bed as well. Let's start with what the cappuccino means. Okay. I suppose the best way to start with this is the myth, which is the myth that the cappuccino is all about the monks. I remember reading training manuals from like the 80s and the 90s, actually well over into the 2000s, let's be truthful, uh, would say, <laughs> um, you know, the cappuccino should look like the monk's head of a cappuccino friar. And uh, what you've got is, you know, that it's um, either that the cappuccino friar wears a right hood over his brown robes or that the cappuccino friar is a kind of guy with he's got all his hair shaved off, you know, in that little what they call a tonsure, you know, so that kind of funny thing where you have the bald spot in the middle. So when you're looking down over the cappuccino, you it's like you're looking at the monk and you've got the the bald spot and then you've got around him the brown clothing. Do you see what I mean? Um <laughs> And, uh, you know, I guess if you were really pushing it, you could say, and of course it has to be domed like the monk's head, but, um, no. So the cappuccino, (laughs) yes. Uh, and we'll work back from this. The cappuccino is about the monks. It is. But it's, it is about the monks, but it's about the monks in a very different way to that. Again, if you spend some time or if you happen to be knowledgeable about uh, religious orders, you'll eventually discover that the cappuccino monk wears a milk chocolatey brown habit, and that's it. Don't cut their hair, don't have a white hood, everything is milk chocolate brown. Okay, now, what that really does is tell us a bit about the origins of the cappuccino. The critical point here is that the cappuccino is not an Italian drink. Gasp. So the cappuccino, gasp, gasp, and we'll, but we'll, we'll, we'll get back to how it becomes an Italian <laughs> drink by the time you get to the cafe. But 
actually where the cappuccino starts is it's an Austrian drink, Austro-Hungarian. Hmm. And uh, we know it originally as the cappuccino. Now, the cappuccino, so that's basically, you know, the, the same thing, the, the monk's uh, reference, but, it, but in German. But the point is that this is all about, if you like, the cocktail effect of just ordinary milk and ordinary coffee. Again, this sort of story, which is just not, I'm going to say, not an entire myth that people would order their coffee, particularly in Austria, on the basis of, well, I want it to come out at a combination of the milk and the coffee to come out a particular color. And so... Oh, okay. So this is, this is like drip coffee with milk? Is that kind of... Yeah, this is like... Or, yeah, exactly. This is basically start of drip coffee, probably actually even before that. This is probably actually um, Turkish coffee okay. sort of redone with milk. Because when we get to the origins of coffee in Austria, then, you know, the, obviously the start point is, is Turkish coffee, mm-hmm. but then that's corrected with milk. And that's actually one of the key ways, I think, that generically in Europe in the 1600s, coffee sort of becomes Europeanized is using that milk addition because it becomes somehow sort of white and Christian. Anyway, that's a, that's a bit of a, a further spin-off. But <laughs> let, let, let's stick with our cappuccino for the moment, okay? So um, monks are in Austria. The cappuccino develops in Austria. Austria uh, is quite an expansionist state. It has, a, as I mean, where you, I'm using the term Austria, but I really, I guess I mean the Habsburg Empire at this point. It expands into that whole sort of southeastern European region. And as part of that, it goes into areas of northern Italy. So in fact, in the 19th century, large swathes of northern Italy, all the way from sort of the Veneto through to Lombardy, Milan, etc., are all basically either directly ruled by the Austrians or ruled under the influence of the Austrians. Yeah, mm. It would seem probable that what comes with that is the Austrian language for coffee and the, or the Austrian coffee beverages as well. We kind of therefore get this idea of appearing of the cappuccino. So by the 1900s, the early 1900s, if you look in a guidebook, some of those early guidebooks to holidaying in northern Italy, so very much these, you know, for, for the sort of elite gentlemen, as it were, doing the grand tour or whatever, what they will tell you is you can order your coffee in various ways and you can order either a cafe latte, you could come back to that one too, hmm. or you could order a cappuccino. And a cappuccino is basically uh, a smaller cup of coffee with less milk. But not but not steamed. This is just no, regular no milk. No, it's absolutely regular regular milk, regular coffee. Probably drip brewed through a, a kind of, um, what do I call that? A kind of a muslin type bag thing. That takes us to the next point. Yeah. So that's your cappuccino at that point. Now, there's a whole program which I'm sure we're going to do sometime. I, I, I greatly hope about the history of Italian coffee. Yes. Uh, so where we start with that, the reason that we extract coffee under pressure, the reason this starts to be become a desired thing to do, which is, of course, to speed up the extraction. Now, Italian manufacturers, um, I'm, I'm going to skip elements of the story because I can do this bit all night. But, you know, we, we know that it's the Italians that first start doing extraction under pressure. 
Okay. Those early people like the Pavoni machine, like the Victoria Arduino and so forth, will do that for you. Now, you know, prior to then, there's nothing called espresso, right? Right. right. So, because, and there's no drink that looks like espresso. And the next important thing to say is, that all of those upright machines, if you think about those upright early espresso machines, don't make anything like espresso either. They okay. make pretty much just a kind of a concentrated filter. It's the pressure in those machines is pretty low, mm-hmm. uh, probably you know about 1.5, maybe up to three bar if you were oh, really lucky okay. over the first part, but you know very low. So you don't have crema, you don't have a concentrated espresso, etc. Coffee myths is just a small part of coffee history, and I love the history of coffee. I want to know so much more. I'm dead serious. And if only I knew somebody who was a historian, who focused on coffee, who wrote books, that would... Wait a second. Hold on. I I have an email here from Professor Morris. Dear Jesse, I'd like to offer 20% off my brand spanking new book, Coffee, A Global History, available today. Use the code Coffee Podcast. Okay, Professor Morris didn't write that email. I mean, brand spanking new. I don't think that's something he would say, though I don't know. But the truth of the matter is that the book does come out today, and he did hook us up with a 20% discount by using the code Coffee Podcast. So be sure to hit the link in the website description. Go check it out. See if it's something you'd be interested in. And if you're interested in today's episode, I guarantee you that this book is right for you. Now, if you're subscribed to our email newsletter, then you're not going to have to worry about writing this down or following the link description or what have you, because you will have an email in your inbox with the link a description, and a few other fun things to to check out and read from The Coffee Podcast. So you can always subscribe to that email at thecoffeepodcast.org. Super easy. Well, thank you for listening, and thank you for engaging in the conversation on social media, Instagram, Facebook, email, what have you. We love the back and forth. it's, It's great for keeping the conversation moving forward. So thanks for tuning in. And as always, and until next time, Happy Brewing.